eight-year-old kid who just wants to make people laugh, but he's not funny. His family and his friends, you're a silly dreamer. But God, God uses the least likely of us to confound the wise, the apostles, you, me. After he had a failing business, after that in 1992, Darren LaCroix decided to chase the dream of that eight-year-old boy. And he proudly got up on the stage at an open mic night at a comedy club in Boston, where he bombed miserably. <laughs> it was terrible. The headliner said, Duh. don't quit your day job, kid. Nine years later, he outspoke 25,000, that's 25,000 contestants to become a world champion with a funny speech. Join us now in Anaheim, California, where they're about to announce the winner. World Champion of Public Speaking, Darren LaCroix. Darren, your subjects would like to hear a few words from you. Man, that's cool. My first prayers, I asked God if the other eight contestants could just go over time. That's all I wanted. Just one more little thing. Did anyone else ever cry during this thing? Am I the first one? I'll never forget, my dad probably doesn't even remember. He said, I don't care what you want to do, just be the best. And I am, Dad. Because that caring and wanting to help people comes through in everything he does. Darren cares about you. He's, he's a mentor. And how to deliver a speech, how to write a speech. So it's just, I think you get the full package with Darren. Darren as I said earlier, challenges you. And he wants me to get better. He wants me to grow. Someone just said, you're going to be, you're the world champion. What are you going to do now? I'm going to Disneyland. Everybody, please welcome Darren LaCroix. Thank you. All right, who was not here last night? Raise your hand. We gotta start over then. <laughs> last night, we learned some important things. Let me check my notes here. Uh, first of all, we learned that a Vega does not die very quickly. <laughs> know these things, this is critical. Uh, we met Simon's mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, I'm not speaking for me, but that was one of the biggest miracles in the Bible, to want to heal your mother-in-law. Okay. Where's Lainey? Where's Lainey? She was last night. Give it up for Lainey. Woo! I love what you said last night. You talked about Peter stepping out into the water, but the, that little 
actually meant they didn't have the endurance. That was a that was an aha for me. Anybody I was like, ooh, that's and many are called but chosen. Uh, that's a big thing for you. Before we get started, uh, I really want to take care of a few people here. So there's volunteers working behind the scenes. They're donating their time. The video crew decided to donate their time. Give them a round of applause. And, and this is, uh, by the way, is it okay? This is the Bible serious, but God wants us to have fun, right? Can we have fun? Is that okay? I know we want to be biblical, and I want, to, I want that, but I want to have fun too. Is that cool? Excellent. Yes. Because I can do the boring one if you want. No? No? Okay. Thank I love that look on your face, Michelle. You're like, no. At home. I don't need that here. But some of you know about this, some of you may not. But last week, um, we lost somebody important. Uh, and his name is Brian. And his brother, Stephen, and his mom, Dawn, are there volunteering for you. Turn around. Some love. Rock. Thank you. Sometimes the best therapy is actually serving others, and that's what they're doing. But when you see them, please, uh, let's, just, let's just shout out, Don, Stephen, we love you. Turn around, shout out, Don, Stephen, we love you. All right, it's Brian. All right, so let's get started. Do you ever wish that you were boss? Oh yeah, some things that change around here. <laughs> so think about this, your boss. You have this idea for a mission. You have an idea for a business and it's brilliant. And everyone that you tell agrees with you. In fact, your idea is so cool, you shark tank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you're not familiar with shark tank, that's where a group of budding entrepreneurs pitch their business in front of some sharks. And there's that ornery there, Mr. Wonderful. It's sarcastic, he's not really wonderful. But the, you pitch to them. So your idea is so good that all of them buy in. Whoa, that's crazy, that never happens. They give you an unlimited budget to start your company, to start your mission. Who would you hire? Think about it, who would you hire? Maybe a celebrity spokesperson? Who would you hire? Anybody? Like, yes, who would you hire? God, okay. You participation party right here. Elon Musk? What's that? Your children, okay. You have a lot of faith in your children. Me, me. thank you, Robin. Bless you and your blue hair. I have hair envy. <laughs> so you'd probably find the best agency, right? A, an amazing first class staff that could handle everything so you could focus on the big picture. Makes sense, right? Logical, right? But that's not how God works. In fact, he does the exact opposite. Check this out, 1 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble by birth, but God. God chose the things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. What does that mean? God chose you. God chose you. Even though you don't feel like it, even though you don't see it, you're like, me? Do that? Mm. Guess what? That's what a lot of the characters in the Bible thought too. 
The idea that God loves us to call the least likely to do amazing things in their lives. We see this throughout the Bible. Spokesperson. Let's say you're God. You have an idea to bring a mission to the earth. You're going to help us. You're going to save us. And you need a spokesperson. Your people call out to you. They're slaves. They, your people call out to you for help. You want to help them. Who would you choose to go to Pharaoh to get him to release your people? You know, maybe a Martin Luther King. The Atonians believe. Makes sense, right? But God chose Moses. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but in Exodus 4.10, Moses said to the Lord, pardon me, pardon me, servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. He had a speech impediment. He stuttered. Why, why would you pick him? Because he sees something. When I don't, God sees something at you that you and I and the rest of the world don't trust him. Think about that. Somebody who has a stuttering problem to be your spokesperson to Pharaoh, the most incredible, uh, wealthy, most powerful man on earth. That's like Porky Pig being your spokesperson. Abri, 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 abri. That's all, Pharaoh. I'm glad there's some Looney Tunes fans here. All right, we're gonna have, we're gonna have some fun. So that's that's number one. Your spokesperson. Now a king. You need a king to forge your people on earth. Who would you choose? An elder statesman. Someone respected and loved. Hired who already has influence. God, God didn't do that. God chose a teenager, a teenager. Think of the teenagers you know. Exactly. No, you'd think a warrior. No, he chose a teenager. Think you and I want God instantly to solve our problems, hand us answers, and give us abilities. It took a long time before David actually took the throne over. It took a long time before Moses convinced Pharaoh, why do you and I think it's going to happen overnight? We got to not only step out of that boat, but we got to keep walking a lot, not a little. Because you may feel like you're sinking. I get it. Me too. But you got to take that next step, even if your knees get wet. <sighs> okay. Now, you need a loyal. Two of your people are behind enemy lines. They're in an enemy city. You need to get them out. They're spies. They're finding out the lay of the land. Who would you choose? Someone who's loyal. Someone who's trusted that you know will take care of the situation. But God. God chose Rahab, a prostitute. Not the first person on our list. Sometimes the thing we're called for does not make sense by who we are and that role that we're given, that he calls us to do. And by the way, if you go on Ancestry.com and you click on Jesus and you click on the leaf, his great, 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 doesn't matter if you choose God. All right, next. Now, you need a marketing team. This new mission. You got to pick 12 people. Who would you choose? 
I think you're noticing a pattern here, right? <laughs> yeah, trusted. The, the religious leaders, the people you know that they will have the right heart. He didn't choose the pharaohs. He didn't choose the Pharisees. He chose a corrupt Jew working for Rome and a bunch of fishermen. He's <laughs> Or how about Quint from Jaws? That's who he chose. It doesn't make logical sense. That was his marketing team. Next, you need a writer. You need someone who is going to write half of the New Testament. You need somebody who is going to bring the message of God to Gentiles. What? So who would you choose? But God, God chose Paul, the guy who was the biggest enemy against Jesus and the apostles and the movement. The biggest enemy. God's like, nope, you. <laughs> so why can't God use you? He is using you. Let him use you more. How do you think the other apostles felt when they found out he chose Paul? You chose who? Were you drinking last night? It just doesn't make sense. Talks about that. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. We're not supposed to understand. We're supposed to trust. We're supposed to step out of the boat in faith. There's great, uh, this isn't from the Bible, but talking about the Bible that I love, that I think is appropriate, it says that we learn throughout the Bible, God doesn't choose the qualified. He qualifies the chosen. But here's the thing. Are you willing to be qualified. Are you willing to let him work with you? Even if it doesn't make sense. Do you still feel like the least likely, even though these examples maybe you couldn't relate to? Me too. I grew up unworthy, feeling unworthy. That moment that you saw, no Hey, does anyone in my family believe that would happen? And neither did I. So what's my least likely story? So this is me growing up with my cousins. <laughs> I grew up Catholic, Catholic light, and uh, French and Polish family. So this is my Polish family. I did eventually get baptized in 2014. However, this is how my background, doesn't matter your background, but this is mine. So I was all excited, love playing with my cousins, and uh, we had so much fun on holidays. It was joy, and I know that maybe you didn't grow up in a household like that, and I'm sorry. I did grow up with June and Ward Cleaver. I still got issues. <laughs> so this is, uh, next. This is my cousins and me. Next one. My cousins and me. This is me. And then next slide. This is Johnny. Johnny was the funny one. Do you have somebody in your family that's the funny one that can make everybody laugh? Oh, my goodness. I was so jealous. We're sitting there at Thanksgiving. I'm at the kids' table. You can smell Kwumpkies, the pierogies, the truck cream pile. Oh my gosh, it was beautiful. And my cousin Johnny could get my aunts laughing. He would recap Saturday Night Live skits. You guys remember Mr. Bill? Oh no, Mr. Bill. Johnny is a living character. 
and he would get everybody laughing. In fact, my aunts are twins, and they laugh in harmony. It's like, woof, 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 woof. You can't not laugh when they're laughing. And I remember one time sitting there in my little aluminum metal seat. It was cold. I don't know why they make them so cold. I'm sitting there and everybody's laughing. And I remember being so jealous and so admiring that Johnny could say something and bring delight and joy to my family. I love that. I thought that was amazing. I wanted to do that. So I stood up and I threw out a punchline. And I hushed my whole family. (laughs) I was so hurt. I was so embarrassed, the pain. I sat there, I said, I will never ever try to be funny again. This hurts too much. Did you ever try something once that just didn't work out? I didn't try it again. I made a pact with myself. That's not my lane. Kids dream like rivers flow. This is me and my trusty dog, Sandy. You couldn't tell me then I wasn't a cowboy. We didn't worry about how as kids. Why would you have a dream, an idea, a mission? This would be cool. And then you talk to that first friend and they kill your dream. As adults, we should know better. As kids, we didn't care. We got to dream like kids again. We got to trust God like kids again. It's biblical. Be like kids. Because here's the problem growing up, I believe, is that well-meaning adults train the dream out of us. I, I can see it now, but then you don't know any better. Be careful what you tell your kids, your grandkids. They listen. You can tell them it might not be easy. You can tell them that's going to be some challenges. But don't you dare tell them no. That's God's job. But God. So I listened. I did what everybody told me to do. I played sports. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm a guy. I'm playing football. This is me, number 21, on the sidelines. Remember back in the 80s when they had those little telephoto lenses that kept getting bigger and longer? You know it's a guy that invented that. And I said we're going to have fun, right? Okay. So... My dad took this picture of me, and I turned to my dad. I'm like, Dad, don't take a picture of me on the sidelines. I don't want to remember being on the sidelines. And he said, Darren, you're never in the game. (laughs) True, but I don't want to remember. Now, I'm so glad he took that picture because now I remember. For years in sports, I was the guy on the sideline. I wanted to be in the game. You can want to step out of the boat. However, I wasn't doing what was necessary. I wanted to play, but I wasn't doing what was necessary. Then summer of junior to senior year, I said, enough is enough. I'm tired of playing on the sidelines. That's it. I'm the first one to practice, the last one to leave. And by the middle of the senior year, I finally get to start. But it was the decision for you stepping out of the boat. It's a decision. There's something you know you're getting a God nudge. However, you listen to well-meaning people that train you out of it. I listened. I went to business school because that's what I was told I was going to do. Graduated in 1988. I had a BS and BS. Right. You too. Preach it. I went to business school. That's what I was supposed to do. That's the thing that you have promise in, maybe. And it was 1992. I was like, okay, I got this. 
Now, right out of college, I, there's no one who will give you a bank loan to start a business. So I found a franchise. I bought a Subway sandwich shop. It's the only way I could get a loan. Subway was the fastest rising franchise, and they had 5,000 stores back in the 90s. This was me, sandwich day one, sandwich one. I was going to be a multimillionaire. I was going to own so many stores it would be unheard of. But about a year and a half later, I had to sell the business at a loss. Just to keep it alive and not default on my loan, I had to get rid of all of my employees but one. I had to work from 9 a.m. to 1 a.m. seven days a week. There was a point I had to get a day job and I hired a couple people and I had the day job to be able to pay the loan. Yeah, it's painful. Guess what? I needed that. God knew I needed that. It was painful. It was tiring. But I grew up a mommy's boy that was cuddled. I had to realize I got to put some effort in this. I got to take the steps. But God. But God. By the way, if you don't know, uh, Subway had a 98% success rate. Yeah, some of you are doing the math. <laughs> Not easy to be in that 2%. You really got to screw up. And I was down and depressed. And my buddy saw how down I was. And I thought, I can't do it. I can't keep going. I quit life. I have those thoughts. My buddy gave me these motivational tapes. And I'm listening to him as I would drive to my, the day job I got. And I was going back and forth. I'm like, I, I like these. They're encouraging. I, I, he's telling me I can do this. Everybody in my life said I can't. And I heard Brian Tracy on one of the tapes. By the way, for the younger viewers, a cassette tape. <laughs> Google it. So I'm listening to this tape of Brian Tracy, and he asked a question. He said, what would you dare to dream if you knew you wouldn't fail? And I thought, I'd be a comedian. If, if I could do anything, how cool would that be? Someday, go to Cedar City. A hundred Christian women. I have to tell you, some of my friends were teasing me about that as a single Christian guy. They're like, you need this. <laughs> I thought, what would I dare to dream if I knew I couldn't fail? I'd be a comedian. I went back to that eight-year-old kid who slid in his seat and said it would never, ever be funny again. I'm like, I have nothing to lose now. So I made it a pact in that moment that I was going to try stand-up once. Now, I am not funny. I am an introvert. I had to work up the energy to walk into a comedy club. Because in these motivational tapes, they say, go to people who are doing it. They think differently. Let's just say, if you want to be a comedian, who would you go to for advice? Anyone? A comedian. Right? Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that logical? So guess what I did? I went to my family. Stupid, 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 stupid. If you have any dream, any hope, any desire, don't go to your family for inspiration. Go to him. Go to him, not your family. And uh, these motivational tapes said, go to people doing it. So I worked up all the courage I could, and I, I went to this little comedy club in Worcester, Massachusetts, near where I lived. And the headliner that night, he seemed approachable. I, now, I didn't know then, but I knew God put the right person to say the exact right thing right in front of me. I said, hi, my name is Darren. I want to try this. What do I need to do? He asked me a question. Are you funny? No. <laughs> he said, good. It was like a Scooby-Doo moment. What do you mean, good? And he went on to explain that people who are class clowns, people who are naturally funny, when you're in front of your friends and family, that's one thing. 
He said, but if you took that class clown and put them in front of a hundred strangers, they couldn't make them laugh. He said, that's a different skill set, but that skill set can be learned. He handed me an ounce of hope. He said two things, Darren. Number one, you need to go to open mic nights and watch other people just starting out. Well, duh. Of course. When I told my friends and family, they were comparing me to Jerry Seinfeld. Someone just thinking about it to someone at the top of their profession, that's not fair. Jerry wasn't Jerry when he first started. He said, number two, you got to get the book. Book? There's a book about stand-up? Of course, there's books about everything, but I wasn't thinking that way. So I went and got the book. On Sunday night, I went to this little comedy club called Stitches in Boston, Massachusetts, right outside of Fenway Park. I walked in. My, my feet were sticking on the floor. <laughs> Could smell the stale beer. I thought, wow, this is where the cool kids hang out. And I watched people go up for their first time on stage. They were horrible. And I thought, I could do that. It actually inspired me. I could do that. Who are you comparing yourself to? Stop comparing yourself to social media and everyone else's perfect life. They ain't showing you the bad stuff. Stop it. Be inspired by don't compare your journey. Your journey is not their journey. And your journey should be with him. Amen. Amen. For two months. I went to Stitches every Sunday night. Boston, Mass. April 26, 1992. Do you ever have a moment in your life where it turns into slow motion? I always remember the comedian introducing me that night. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage for the first time, Darren LaCroix. And I came up for this side of the stage. I had my little jokes on note cards. I put them on the bar stool in front of me. I had so much anxiety going through my body. I didn't have the wherewithal to pull my hand off the note cards. You ever try and read while you're shaking? <laughs> and one of my very first jokes was about Dr. Robert Goddard. And if you don't know him, he launched the first liquid fuel rocket in history. You may have heard of Goddard Space Centers. Well, Dr. Goddard launched the first rocket in my hometown. So I was making light of that. And I was saying that I was so nervous that what I was saying and what I was doing with my body was not in sync. <laughs> and I said, the rocket took off and it went vertically. Those of you playing the home game, this is horizontal. <laughs> oh. And in an instant, I realized I messed up, and I just said, ah, shoot. It's not the actual word I used that night. And everyone started laughing. Are you laughing? That's not where you're supposed to laugh, but I'll take it. That's the only laugh I got that night. But as I walked off stage, this man, one of the other comics, put his arm around my shoulder. He said, don't worry, man. It's just your first time. And I remember thinking, don't worry. It's just my first time. Did you see what I did? <laughs> I got a laugh. <laughs> I am the king of comedy. <laughs> Why so often do we let other people tell us what success Everyone thought I bombed. I looked at it differently. I got a laugh. Thank you. That's it. I was all in. I prayed. I did. It didn't make sense, but I am going to figure this out. I don't care how long it takes. That felt so good. I felt like that eight-year-old kid, only this time he was Johnny. So now I tell you that story. A lot of people think, well, you know, you're pretty comfortable and confident up there. Well, this was a long time ago. So I brought proof. 
I'm gonna show you the most powerful 57 seconds of video that you've ever seen. <laughs> now, when I show you this clip, let me get two things out of the way right up front. Number one, this was 1992. A lot has changed. <laughs> and number two, ladies, I am fully aware that parachute pants are no longer in fashion. They might make a comeback, though. So check this out. Does anyone here live in New England? Yeah. yeah. I, had, I figured I had to get something. <laughs> anybody ever notice that any, every other small town in New England takes one little small historical fact and makes it the greatest event in the world? <laughs> Sorry for my voice, like, fluttering a little bit. But um, a lot of towns are like this. Um, I did, I, I was doing some research, like, places like Lexington, you know, the first um, revolutionary skirmish happened there. Um, what was his name? I can't even think of his name. Obviously, he was real famous. Eli Whitney was in Westboro, you know, born in Westboro. Um, I was doing some research, and I discovered that the, the actual... The first dentist to use ether actually happened in Charlton, Massachusetts. Now, now tell me the truth. If you were sitting in that comedy club last night, that night, and you saw that performance, would you have ever walked up to me and said, you know, Darren, if you practice real hard, someday you could do this for a living. No, I watch it now and I think, how did I ever go up a second time? But my real question for you is this. If I can go from that to speaking around the world, what can you do? you do. I stepped out of the boat. My knees and my armpits got wet a lot. <laughs> I doubted a lot. But I kept praying. So what is your Nineveh? What's that nudge in your life that you know you should be doing, but you come up with all these excuses? What's your Nineveh? Those of you who aren't as familiar, maybe new to the Bible, Jonah and the whale. Jonah was told, you need to go to Nineveh. Jonah said, no, I'm going this way. Not only that, he got on a boat to go farther away, found out that his shipmates found out that he was cursed. He threw him out of the boat, swallowed by a whale, and for three days he was in the belly of the whale until he realized he needed to go to Nineveh. And then the whale spit him out. Here's my question for you. Have you been swallowed by the whale of self-doubt? Have you been swallowed by the whale of self-doubt? Think about this. Moses had to approach Pharaoh. Could you imagine how that felt? Going up to the most wealthiest, powerful man in the world and say, those slaves are working hard for you, you need to let him go. How do you think that felt? He was scared, I bet, even though he knew. Imagine the faith that took. How about David? Oh, wait. Now, God used, next one, uh, God used plagues and locusts to help Moses, okay? That kind of overcompensates for the stutter. I'm just saying. But what would God use for you? We don't know. We don't know. David had to run at Goliath. No one else in the army would take him on. He is more experienced. Imagine the faith that took. For you and I as the leaks likely, we have to remember, we have to pray like it depends on God. But you and I have to step out of the boat and work like it depends on us. As the least likely we need to do 
both. Both. So these are my comedy mentors. Uh, that book that I got, Woman in the Middle, Judy Carter wrote that. Vinny, he was my comedy mentor. I was taught by my mentors, stage time, stage time, stage time. Any day that you don't get on stage is a day that you don't grow. Don't I have to be good? No, 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 you have to go up to get good. But when you have no talent, you're not a great comedy writer, uh, you have no stage presence, and you're an ultimate introvert, do you know how hard it was to go into that comedy club? Think about this. You know, at the beginning, you're not in front of 200 people laughing, joking, in a good mood, no. You're in the back of a bar with the TV still on, standing on a milk crate. So me, I sat outside in my little brown swagging rabbit, not a Vega, but a rabbit. And I would listen to the song Right Now by Van Halen. Right now. Because in that song, it moved me. It said, all I need to do, my mentor said, all I need to do is go in and go up on stage. They didn't care if I bombed. You gotta let go of bombing, whatever that is in your dream, in your calling. You gotta let, that's part of the process. That's what's gonna teach us. I used to drive two and a half hours to, from Boston to Portland, Maine to go on stage for five minutes for free and drive back. My high school buddies told me I was stupid. My mentors were impressed and wanted to help me more because I was willing to step out of the boat. Now I get to fly all over the world. I get to do what I love to do for a living. Now my high school buddies look at me and they say, you're lucky. Apparently you can go from stupid to lucky. <laughs> Does anyone ever, anyone's ever called you stupid? Keep going, you're probably on the right path. So after a show in Boston, uh, Vinny, my mentor, he was one of the best headliners in Boston at the time. He would invite me to go to Foxwoods with him and hang out. Like that was a brand new casino back then in Connecticut. But I was like, a a, I've been accepted by the crowd. So I would go. It didn't make sense, but I, I didn't want to be there. But I got to be with one of the best headliners. I didn't know what was really going on. How about you? How about you? What's that thing that scares you? You know what it is. Please. To step out of the boat. And it's going to take some time. It was for David. It was for Moses. And it was nine years for me. Please, I know it's not easy. Please, step out. Why? Because your kids and kids are watching. We lose the projector? Okay, boom, there it is, magic. You have no idea how much we've been praying up there for technology to work. <laughs> Here's the thing, your kids and grandkids are watching. You want to teach them faith? Well, show them faith. You can go to, Sunday, to church on Sunday. That ain't showing them faith. Right. Step out of the boat. They, they hear what you're saying, but they're learning from what you're actually doing. So a few, really, a few years later, uh, it was around Christmas time, and I remember Vinny calling me, and he said, Darren, he goes, my mom's, my mom's sick. I love his mom. My mom's sick. I need $3,500 right away. Um, New Year's Day, New Year's Eve is the biggest comedy weekend of the, of the year, and I get a huge payout, and I'll pay you back then. I had no money. He said, well, here, let me show you how to wire it from your credit card. I didn't have credit cards. How do you say no? So I did it. I could help him out. I could finally give back to him. New Year's Eve, I showed up at the comedy club, Grill 93, Andover, Massachusetts, after the show. Hey, is, is Vinny still in there? He left an hour ago? 
It was devastating. He took the money. I didn't know he had a gambling problem. I was too naive. I thought, how could I ever do comedy without the guy? Don't put your faith in people. Don't put your faith in people but God. But God. One of my other teachers early on had moved to California. He moved back. And that same week, I had one more show I was going to do. I said, I I committed to this. I'm not going to let him down. I'm still going to show up and do it. And he was the headliner that night. And we sat at the bar. We were talking. And I told him what happened. (laughs) And he's a great, well, not yet. Back up. Back up. Yeah, right there. Um, And uh, he said at the bar, he, he starts laughing. He goes, do you think you're the only one that he stole money from? I wasn't. He said, Darren, how much, how much has he helped you over the past couple of years? Get on stage, learn how to do this, and actually do it and being competent at it. Uh, actually, a lot. He said, you went to college, right? Yeah. He goes, how much is that degree helping right now? <laughs> What'd you pay for that? 40 grand a year for four years? I think you're ahead right now. So he made me realize, even though he took the money, I got so much more. I got a belief in myself that I could stand up there next. So I was pursuing my dream. I found speaking. I did both for a while, but I found speaking. I realized I cared more about the ahas than the ha-has. So they did an article in the paper about dreams and day jobs. I still have my day job, but I was pursuing that dream. And next picture. So this is me in my little telemarketing headset. That's the job I got temporarily after Subway until I figured out what I was going to do with my life. Next. In fact, I was struggling so much, I was still living at home. And a naysayer of my life, I won't any names, my brother, um, <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, he called my parents and said, kick him out. He needs to grow up. Stop letting him live there for such a low rent. He needs to grow up. He wasn't wrong. And then I'm looking out the window at Bose where I was working. I remember this. Malachi, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me on this. The Lord, the Almighty said, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out as much blessing that there is not room enough to store it. I went home that night and got on my knees. I said, okay, God, you know I work on a telemarketer's salary. I'm paying off 20000 in debt from the loan. All right, I get a comedy gig. I'll give $50 comedy gig. I'll give you five bucks. I get a $100 gig, I'll give you 10 bucks. And I'll start even give you from my telemarketing salary. It doesn't make sense. I don't have the money. But you said test you on this. And I did. And I said something else that night. That's when I told him, next. I said something else that night. I said, if you help me do this for a living, you ask me to show up for any audience or help any pastors tell the better stories, I'll be there. I'm here yeah. for you. I appreciate that, but that's what I told him I'd do. Debbie asked, she told you last night, she asked me and I said, what are the dates? I didn't even question it. Glad it didn't snow. I'm from Vegas. (laughs) All right. I know I'm a little bit over time. Okay. Thank you, Debbie. (laughs) Yeah. After that, how's she going to say, no, get off. All right. But I am winding it down here. So uh, next. 
my comedy mentor saw what I was doing. He said, Darren, stop trying to tell that, find that story that will launch your career. Because in the speaking world, you're told you need that story you're known for. He said, stop trying to find it. And take, take the stories you already have and make them so good, someone will pay to hear them. Well, I was working at Bose. I was marketing myself every waking moment. I was speaking anywhere and everywhere I could. I was on stand-up comedy shows. I was doing um, Toastmasters, four Toastmaster clubs right away. I, I don't have time to actually work on my craft. I ignored his advice for two years. But God. My buddy Dave, uh, he was diagnosed with cancer. And he had come out of, uh, he had became a comedian from AA. He was so funny telling his drunkologues that people like, you have to be a comedian, you have to be a comedian. And um, he took that through cancer and he started bringing, he was the first, the first comedian that I'm aware of that said the word cancer in the 90s from the stage. Now we use that word all the time, but at a comedy show, the word cancer, you didn't do that back then. And he would tell his story, he told me one day, he said, he said, Darren, yeah, I went, I went into the doctor, and the doctor said they got to take out my bladder. He said, but he had a real raspy voice. He said, they're going to take out my piece of my bladder, but, but what they're going to do is they're going to they kind of cut off a piece of my intestine, make that into a bladder. And I thought, that's kind of cool. I was excited. He said, but if you look at it from the intestine's point of view, <laughs> it's not a promotion. You know, one day you're in food service. <laughs> Next day you wake up, you're in waste management. <laughs> that was my buddy Dave. He showed me who I was. That I was a speaker. I'm not a comedian. He showed me the fork in the road that God wanted me to take. That's where I belong. Next. I ignored his advice for a couple of years. And uh, then this newsletter came across my desk at Bose Corporation about the speech contest coming up. The speech contest. And I was like, international speech contest. Pfft, yeah, fancy name. I had no idea. 25,000 people competed from 14 countries around the world. I just thought it was a little marketing ploy. I was like, you know what, though? I could take that story of my first time on stage and I could pull it out of my keynote. So I was getting paid, not a lot, still had a day job. I was getting paid at that time doing keynote speeches. So I pulled the story out of it and I Toastmaster speech contest is seven minutes. So I gave it an open and close just to work on it, work on it, work on it. I was finally following Dave's advice. Take the stories you have and make them so good someone will pay to hear them with my whole goal to put it back in the keynote speech, thus raising the value of the whole keynote speech. And I won the first level, and I won the second level, and I won the third level, and I had to write a new speech, and then I won that level. I was in it not for a trophy. I didn't care about the trophy. I was building a career. But God. So I won five levels. I was going to the world championship, Brown walked into my life. He was the 1995 world champion of public speaking. He was going to work with me. Now, I've been doing Toastmasters for seven years. I've been a speaker and stand-up for nine years. Check this out. 77 days before the world championship, I drove to work with Mark. I had my first version of this brand new speech because I was out of stories I could rework. And I brought it to Mark. Two and a half hours south this time, Reader's Digest. We were in a little office, a little theater, just like this. And it was just Mark and me. And I said, now, if you don't know Mark Brown, he stands about six foot two. He's got a heart of gold. He's a native of Jamaica. And he's got a laugh like the guy from the old 7-Up commercial. Ah, ha, ha, ha. That was my coach. As I handed Mark the very first version of the speech, I swear the greatest speech in the history Toastmasters. It was so good you could hear choirs of angels as I handed it to him. <laughs> Mark took the speech. <sighs> oh, Darren, 
we have some work to do. <laughs> what? I never told me to do. I wrote the greatest speech that I could write from the level I was at. But you don't know what you don't know. And I learned something that day. If you're not coachable, there is no cure. If you're not open, if you're not coachable, there is no cure. Mark looked at my speech. He said, we need another failure story. <laughs> so my speech was about the taking a step after the out. You can check it out on YouTube. It's free. Go check it out. Put in Darren LaCroix winning speech. He said, we need another failure. And I said, well, I used to tell this joke that I wrote right out of that comedy book about my subway shop. He said, well, try it out. Tell me. After four years of business school, I went out and I went for the American dream. I bought a subway sandwich shop. Oh, yeah. You're all impressed, I can tell. I don't want to brag or anything, but in six short months, I took a $60,000 debt, and I doubled that debt. <laughs> That's right. I turned Subway Sandwich Shop into a nonprofit organization. I financially fell on my face. Those failures, those painful moments, God has a way of using them. If I didn't have that, I wouldn't have that joke. So, um, month before the contest, uh, I, I was dating somebody at the time, and we were at a little Catholic church in Putnam. Next slide. Putnam, Massachusetts, and I was in the fourth row, and I'm sitting there, and I'm praying. I'm like, God, okay, I got the biggest speech of my life coming up, 2,000 people. I've never been in front of more than 200. You got to help me, and I kid you not, like, where else would a freaking divine idea come down but at church, <laughs> and so I asked, I was like, ah, oh, yes, give me a pen, give me a piece of paper, give me a pen, pen, pen. So this is the drawer. <laughs> I was yes. And she didn't get it. She still didn't get it. Of course she didn't get it. So we stand, we, we go ahead next. We go outside, New England church. You got to see the stone wall and the grass. So I take a woman I was dating and I bring her out on the sidewalk and I stand her up. I'm like, okay, this is, I'm like, I'm on stage. So... I stand here and I say, okay, my goal is that way. And I fall on my face and I stand up. I'm like, I made progress. And she's like, I don't get it. Oh, it's brilliant. <laughs> this is what it turned into. Next. Ooh. But we're so afraid of that ouch, we forget. That if we lean forward and take a risk and fall on our face, we still made progress. <laughs> so the night before the contest, Mark, my coach, uh, saw me lusting after the trophy because it was down to eight. I thought, I, I'm... I live in Vegas now, but back then, I, you know, the Vegas odds are pretty good. <laughs> but he could see me lusting after the wrong thing. I won't ask you to hold up your hands, but anybody else, catch yourself. Congratulations, you're human. It's okay. But catch yourself and listen. And Mark turned to me and he said, Darren, it's not about the trophy. Tomorrow morning, you have the privilege of 2,000 lives for seven minutes. What will you do with that? I think of that every time I get the opportunity. Today, I had the privilege of an hour with you. I took a little more. <laughs> <laughs> I 
This is a sermon I did in my church five years ago. I had to relearn it, so I apologize a little longer. Um, but look, go forward. We're going to skip a couple. Um, go right to the next one. That was the moment, bam, that I knew I nailed it. I didn't know if I had won at that moment. Um, I didn't know if I won at that moment, but I knew I gave the speech I came to give. I had listened to Tina Turner's Simply the Best over and over again. Not that I would be the best speaker, but I would serve the audience the best. I don't know what God is going to use for you. He didn't use locusts and plagues for me. I, I, it might have been, it might have got me there quicker. I'm not, <laughs> hey, he's the planner. I, I'm open. <laughs> but God used people. I needed Vinny to overcome my doubt. I needed him. He took advantage of a situation. That's okay. I got way more out of it than he did. Dave taught me who I am. You're an inspirational speaker. You're not a comedian. That's where you belong. I needed Mark to figure out what is my story? What's that thing inside me that I need to share? Next. I've never been outside the U.S. at that time. We're going to go through uh, one more. I was in Nanjing, China. And next one. Um, I'm reminding you that everywhere you go, in the hallway, in the bathroom, downstairs, upstairs, when you go to Walmart, you're going to meet people. And I, when I was in China, I had just got baptized, and I had learned from my pastor, ask God to bring people who can help you, who you can help. I'm like, I'm in China. And I had these people who were translating for me, and uh, it just was not a great situation. So I told the person, and the next day, this is Bobo. Bobo showed up. He was amazing. We went to a little cafe, and I sat down with him, and he told me about his dad being in jail. We talked about speaking for a while, but then he told me about his dad being in jail. Now, I can't relate to that. Remember June and Ward Cleaver? <laughs> However, I told him the story of my pastor, Vince, Vince Antonucci, who his dad was caught on America's Most Wanted. Bobo was all in. He could relate. But I prayed for God to bring me someone to help. Keep praying that. And love when they show up. Next. So just go through quickly. So I've spoken around the world. Sydney. Philippines. I am the least likely to ever be on a stage. Ukraine a couple years ago for executives. China. One more. Italy. Okay, stop there. Back up one. Let me just set this up. So a couple years ago, I had this inspiration that I was supposed to. By the way, real quick, does anyone, um, anyone have a big, ridiculous dream that makes no sense? Raise your hand if you. Okay. Um, two years ago, I avoided Nineveh. I had this idea that I was, I'm in, I was obsessed with Rudy. You know the movie Rudy? Rudy, Rudy. That came out in 93. I started stand-up in 92. I clung on to that character. And that kept me going. And a couple of years ago, one of my, my um, speaking mentors sat me down and he went around, what's your big, crazy, ridiculous dream? What's your big, crazy, ridiculous dream? And he got to me and I was shrinking in my seat again. I'm like, oh man, the eight-year-old kid's coming back. And he said, what's your crazy, ridiculous dream? And I said, well... You know, I love the movie Rudy, and I've been around the world telling my story. What if they made a movie about my story? But who am I to have a movie made about me? My mentor slammed his hands down on the table, got right in my face. He said, who are you not to have your dream? Okay. A motivational speaker, who am I not to pursue my next one? It took me nine years to write the movie script. Um, it's this story that you're hearing, and now I'm trying to sell it to Hollywood. So what is your name, Bob? What is your name? Yes, you raised your hand, right? Yeah. You have a big, crazy, ridiculous dream. Um, last year, I wrote a book called 17 Minutes of Dream, 
and my mom and dad weren't doing well. And I was like, they didn't kick me out when my brother told them to. They loved me even though it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to them. How do you support your kids when it makes no sense and you think you're doing the wrong thing? Please keep loving them. So I want to give this to you. Thank you. I wrote that in 17 days because I was visiting my dad who wasn't doing well at my sister's house. I woke up. I'm like, I have to write the book. What did I work in my last dream that I could use for my next dreams? I wrote it for me and I wrote it for you. And I wanted it to be done for my parents. And they were both not doing well and they weren't going to make it. And I wanted to get done because I wanted to thank them. So check this out. They pulled through. Mom's in memory unit. Go ahead. I dedicated this book to the eight-year-old dreamer inside of you and to mom and dad who, I, who despite telling them about my crazy, ridiculous dream but made no logical sense, love me anyway. What popped into your head that was scary about your Nineveh? You got friends here. You're at a retreat. Pray for each other. Ask them each other, what's your Nineveh? What's that step you need to take? Let me pray for you. Please ask that in the hallway. Let's get some deep networking going. That's what it is about. Next. Reminder, 1 Corinthians. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. I'm foolish. That's what a lot of people said, and I'm here, thanks to him. Next. On Shark Tank, there's a man called Mr. Wonderful. If he doesn't like your idea, he says you're dead to me. <laughs> but that's not your God. Your God is here to tell you you're alive. I don't know what your Nineveh is. I don't know what that step is, but I want to tell you I'm going to pray for you. We need to pray for each other. What would you dare to dream if you knew God chose you. He did. You are the least likely. Step out of the boat. Let's pray. Dear God, thanks for this time. Thanks for Debbie giving me grace for going over time. Uh, thanks for these women being so open and so loving and for each other. Uh, please help us take something that we need from this retreat Please bless all the rest of the speakers today and all the volunteers who are helping. And God, thank you for Jake in the back of the room who's been raising his fists at everything else I said, cheering me on. <laughs> and God, thank you for helping us. You're least likely. Amen.